This podcast is brought to you by Laterno University. Laterno University is the Christian polytechnic university in the nation where educators engage students to nurture Christian virtue, develop competency and ingenuity in their professional fields, integrate faith and work, and serve the local and global community. Laterno offers more than 140 undergraduate and graduate degree programs across a range of disciplines and delivery models at Laterno's residential campus in Longview, Texas, and in hybrid and fully online options at centers in the Dallas and Houston areas. Online at letu.edu. That's letu.edu. Hey there, it's producer Michael Miracle here. Thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast. We are your on-air resource as a workplace believer. And check out our website for tons more I Work For Him resources. We've got blogs and podcasts and reading material and all sorts of fun stuff there. Plus, a link to listen to the live show several times a day. Yep, head to the website. That's IWorkForHim.com. IWorkTheNumberForHim.com. And the listen tab's up there on the top left. Click that, then click the live link, and you can listen to us live every weekday. That's IWorkForHim.com. I work the number for him.com. And now let's go ahead and kick off what we all came here for, hearing more about connecting what we learn on Sunday with what we do in our 9 to 5. This is the I Work For Him podcast. Hey, welcome to I Work For Him as we broadcast today from Minneapolis, Minnesota. The headquarters of Urban Ventures. Check them out online, urbanventures.org. But before we get to our interview today with John Turnipseed, love for you to connect with us. That's right, Jim. So if people go to our website, they can find every single way possible to connect with us. And sometimes it can seem overwhelming, all the different ways they can listen to the show when they're not next to the radio. But we did that on purpose because we don't want to give people um, a reason to say, oh, I couldn't catch it at a certain time of day. So go to our website. You can learn about where you can listen to the show, subscribe to podcasts, subscribe to your blog, um, and connect with us on the contact page. Give us some feedback. Tell us about some person. You may hear John Turnipseed's story today, and it may inspire a listener to say, you know, I know someone who has a God story that needs to be shared um, of what they're doing in their workspace. And um, we want to hear about that. We want to be connected. All right. And you can also call us on the listener line, 866-713-9675, 866-713-9675-866-713-WORK. You know, there's a ton of misunderstanding in our country between the different cultures of our society. You know, I don't say races because that's a misdirect. We're all the same race, all descended from two people. Adam and Eve, or even more specifically, eight people who got off a boat four or 5,000 years ago. So there's lots of things that tear us apart because of the cultural differences, but there's one thing that pulls us all back together, and that is the desire, the yearning for a father. This desire born out of a yearning in our soul for a connection to our heavenly father, we get really messed up if our earthly fathers desert us or abuse us. The plague of fatherlessness in the United States has torn our country apart in every sector of our country. Fatherlessness is between 25 and 60 percent, depending on the culture you live within and your economic status. Today, we're going to highlight the story of one man who grew up in South Minneapolis, fatherless and lost. Hear the destruction that came from his life and learn how three men became adopted fathers and introduced Jesus into this man's life and how he's introducing Jesus into a whole area where he used to rule as a gang leader by bringing God-sized solutions to his neighborhood. John Turnipseed, welcome to I Work For Him. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. That, that wasn't too much hyperbole, was it? I, mean, <laughs> I, just, I just, I got a chance to read your book last weekend in preparation for today's interview. And, and 
I was riveted. I had a hard time turning it down. Part of it's because I grew up here, mm-hmm. and, and it explains so much. But what I love more than anything, John, is that this has a happy ending because you surrender to Christ, and your radical Jesus change has impacted the entire South Minneapolis community, and that's what's cool. Oh, thank you. And it, I, it's all about Jesus. Right. It really is. And, and I get that, and I, and I know that that's how you feel. You know, John, when I got my license in 1982, my parents say, stay, stay out of South Minneapolis. Definitely go, don't go to the east side of 35. They were right, weren't they? They were absolutely right. Uh, this was uh, the ugliest part of Minneapolis at that time. A lot of people think it was North Minneapolis, but when they called the National Guard in, in, in the early 1990s, it was to combat what was happening in what was called Murderapolis at the time. Mm. Yeah, and there were thousands. I mean, I'm trying to remember the numbers that in the 90s, there were, there were years where, I mean, was it almost a thousand murders? But I mean, there's yeah. tons of gunshot. I mean, gunshot wounds. It was, it, was, it was a plague. Yeah, for Minnesota, they had never seen anything like it. You know, we were maybe accustomed to a few murders a year. And now all of a sudden there was, you know, hundreds of murders. There were, you know, people getting shot all the time. That's why we have shot spotters right now today. Um, we were becoming uh, like other major cities uh, with our gang problem. It was really crazy. We learned about shop sp- uh, shot spotters on a TV show just recently where they, they detect the sound of a shot and report it to the police so people get there faster. I think yes. you know what it is. All right. So let's step back a little bit because this all started with you as a child. How, did you get to, did you know your father? Yes, I knew him. Uh, my father, uh, we were born in Selma, Alabama. Uh, he was a deacon in the church, um, took care of his family, married to my mother, and had a very good relationship until um, he came up here when I was in 1960. Um, when the civil rights movement was happening in Alabama, he came up here to get away from there because people were getting hurt and we were scared of white people, actually. Sure. And we came up and we came up a year and a half later and he was a totally different person. He had left the church. He was no longer a deacon. He was more like a pimp or something and very violent. Um, he, he was drinking alcohol. He'd get drunk and he was an angry drunk. And so uh, he went from being my hero to the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. So but I mean, do you know what happened? I mean, obviously there was the, the time in Selma and really in the South in the sixties was a tough, tough time. I mean, it was tough all the way up to that, but it was very tough. Do you know what triggered that major change in your dad? Was it just the relocation from the South to the North or what was it? Well, when we were down South, everything was centered around family and church, God, uh-huh. family and loyalty. And we were in a place where we always went to church every day actually we, <laughs> the preacher settled all disturbances or whatever there was no like domestic violence in the household because these were open transparent families that loved the lord and lived by god's rules when my father separated himself from the church um i don't know who all he met up here but by the time we met up here he had been to jail he had um um, had two or three girlfriends, uh, you know, things that were not in, in in Alabama. So I don't know what happened, but I know that it totally changed him. And he took us out of the church. Mm. And that started to impact you. How did, he, how did your dad treat you after you moved to Minneapolis? My dad, um, I don't remember a conversation that I had with my dad except for when I was 16, when I told him I would kill him. Um, I, I stopped talking to him. He wasn't my dad anymore. He never hit me. He always hit my mother. He took everything out on her. And so um, never had a conversation with him. I didn't know him as a person. I was never hugged by him. 
Um, I don't even to this day. I can't say that I ever knew my father because he left your home when you were young. No, he 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 left home. He came up here. He left, but he would come every day and beat my mother. So I guess you could call it. He left home because then he'd go to his girlfriend's house and stuff. That, but that's so I seen him, mm. you know. But he was the worst thing. Um, he was the boogeyman. He was like the boogeyman showing up every night and we prayed to keep him away that didn't work so we prayed that he'd have an accident that didn't work and then we prayed that we got old enough to kill him that didn't work then we stopped praying hmm. so how did that lack of having a decent role model as a father and, and to say that having the boogeyman as your father how did that impact you that changed me i you know i know who i was as a kid i was a great kid i was i just wanted i loved the lord i was going to be a preacher when i grew up mm-hmm. at seven years old i could recite the bible back and forth and i just god was everything and that family was everything and he took all of that out of me he drained every ounce of god out of me i to where i looked at god like santa claus it ain't really real you know mm-hmm. it's hocus pocus because if god was real he wouldn't allow this to happen and the conflict of loving somebody that was hurting somebody you loved was just something it overwhelmed me as a child and threw me in. I, I believe it mental illness set in because I was just destroyed. There was no more kid left in me. Hmm. And how many kids were in your family? There was five, me, six boys. Six and, boys. Yeah. So how did all that lead you into becoming part of what we call the disaster of the Lake Street neighborhood? Well, it um, when your father is not there and he was, you know, left and, and we kids are left to defend for themselves. Um, the wolves come in and the wolves. Uh, I was basically mentored by pimps and drug dealers and gangbangers. They, they took me in. They helped me feed my little brothers, you know, they, you know, provided things for me, you know, taught me how to do armed robberies, taught me how to have a girl sell her body. And most devastating is taught me that violence was a necessary tool. And um, so that changed all of a sudden. These are people that were hugging me and telling me I was great and and taking care of me and protecting me and stuff and, and just teaching me that um, evil was good. They put my conscience to sleep. Mm. Mm. And all of that teaching led you to go, I don't want to work for them. Why don't Why don't I be in control? That's really where the yeah. story picks up next. When we come back, lots more with John Turnipseed. He's written this book, Bloodline. You got to read this book. It is literally a page turner. You can't put it down And the amazing part is it's got an amazing ending. And as all of our stories have an amazing ending when we put Jesus as the exclamation point. But John's taking that further. God's moved his life into a ministry called urbanventures.org, urbanventures.org. I want you to check it out because I think that this is a model that should be and will be reproduced across this phenomenal country. John Turnipseed, right before the break, you were talking about how you were being mentored by, I think you said, pimps, gang leaders, and what was the third? Um, Drug dealers. Drug dealers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So those three guys are your mentors. Most people would say those aren't fantastic mentors. It's not great role models. But they taught you a lot of the bad stuff, but you said, I don't want to work for them. What did you decide? You know, I I was approached 
by a group of guys um, that it came out of uh, Chicago, actually, and uh, they wanted to start something here, and they wanted me to be a part of it. And I said, you know what? Um, do I get deleted? And they said, no, you got to work your way up. I said, well, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, I didn't want. It's to me, it didn't make any sense working for somebody else. You know, I had a father, and he wasn't a father to me. Why would I let another man tell me what to do? That didn't make any sense to me. If I was going to do something, I was going to do it on my own and stuff. So that's when I decided I'll start my own thing. And your own thing really involved relatives. I mean, your gang that you ruled South Minneapolis with was just a tremendous amount of people that were related to you. Well, a lot of of people don't know the first gang I really ever started was in St. Cloud Penitentiary. Uh, that's what that's when I really learned how about organization of gangs and stuff. It was called the Black Brotherhood Cultural Development Organization, whatever. And uh, <laughs> we, we used that as a, as a guise, you know, to get um, drugs and prostitutes into the prison. And we created nonprofits uh, to bring in our drugs and everything. And that's, you know, when I was like 18 years old, I did that. So when I got out of prison, that was a natural thing for me because I'd met gang leaders from St. Louis and Chicago and all that. And um, I had a family here that had to fight off that stuff. So turnip seeds as a family, we were very close, very close. So my best friends were my cousins and, mm. my, and my little brothers and stuff. So we decided that nobody would interfere in our lives. Nobody would push us around and this is where we lived. So if you wanted to come in here, you better not dare put up graffiti or anything. We're just not going for it. This is where we live. And by this time, we had large families that had migrated up here. We, I mean, families of 18, 19, you know, we're from Alabama. You know, it's like we don't do abortion. We have kids and they are family and, and we love one another and mm-hmm. we stick together. But now we're not sticking together f- for good. We're, we're raising criminals, you know, we're, you know, the boys in our family, you know, you, after 13, you can drop out of school, you know, you, why go to school for what, you know, but you're, whether or not you wanted to be a part of us, you acquired our enemies. So it was like, if you had turnip seed as part of your name or some of the other names, you acquired our enemies. So you had to be a part of us. And if you were not just out of protection, out of protection. And we, we actually, in a strange, crazy way, we love one another. But that was what made us dangerous is because if you mess with one of us, everybody showed up. It didn't matter right or wrong. Um, that, that was the rule. And nobody in the family was allowed to hurt anybody in the family physically, you know. So everything we took out was on other people. So we had our own bars. We had our own ecosystem um we didn't even have to go out of the neighborhood to buy clothes meat anything you know people would bring it in for us and stuff we had a massive amount of people you got pretty sophisticated in your crime yeah. uh, where you know as i read in your book you, you'd case out it you, you'd walk into a, a place you'd be dressed nice mm-hmm. uh you were you were scoping out a joint that's not that you were casing out a joint all day long and then you come back at night and you rob the place but you ended up doing a lot of that on your own because a lot of the people you hung out with they got a little more violent than you wanted to be. Yeah, I did. You know, I it got to a point. Violence for the sake of protection to me made sense. Okay, when other gangs would try to come in, but the younger guys, my son and some of my little nephews and all this kind of stuff, they like the excitement of violence. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. If it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense. 
And so I had formed relationships with gangs from other states and things and different gang leaders. And the little older ones, we got a little bit more sophisticated and we wanted to make money and, and less of the violence and stuff. So how did God move in your life? Art Erickson came in there somewhere along the way. Well, Art had been a neighborhood um, youth pastor. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, if you know what a youth pastor is, they are they're forced to be reckoned with because they're persistent. And because <laughs> he was one of God's boys, you better not mess with him. Now, you get a picture of South Minneapolis at that point in time is pretty much black neighborhood. Black neighborhood. And here's a Art Erickson. He's a Norwegian. Yes. And, he, and he's all, all white. His kids are white because we, we've met his yeah. son-in-law. I mean, it, and he just is playing in your neighborhood. I mean, the, the girls talk about the fact they just rode bikes around her. They didn't know any different. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he was a white guy in our neighborhood, but he earned the right to be here. My mother and I had a bunch of aunties, you know, 15 aunties. Um, oh, my They goodness. loved him. They thought he was the greatest guy. He was one of God's boys, and and my brothers liked him, and uh, different people in the neighborhood liked him. But he was bad for business because <laughs> when you being raised in the church and knowing he was one of God's boys, when I seen him, that just did something. So I just put up a wall, and I remember him telling me, I was like seventeen, if you change, your whole family will change. And I just never responded to him. I just kept walking. And um, because some, there was something I knew that he was telling me the truth. And if if dealing with him, I'd have to give up my lifestyle. I knew that. I it just something I knew. And by 17, you were heavy into drugs. You, you've been you're doing drugs. robbery, criminal activity all day long. I mean, it was it was you were a pretty hardened criminal by the time you were 17. Yes. I, you know, I had a number of felonies. I'd been kicked out of uh, the public school system. I could not go back into it. Um, there was just. I was career criminal already. I already had a, an institution number. I'd already seen the parole board at 17. I'd already been in a miniature um, juvenile prison at 17, you know. So I was just, that's how, that's, that was my life. So tell the rest of the story. How did God rescue you from this criminal Act, I mean, you were a hardened criminal. How did God rescue you? Tell well, us the rest of that story. At first, you know, I, I knew he had, he had already prepared a place for me to be when, when I recognized him as my savior. And he had put people in my life that I didn't have anything to do with, but they were there for a reason. And Art was one of those people in Urban Ventures. Just three weeks before I was indicted for 50 felonies and getting ready to get 50 felonies. 50 felonies. I pled guilty to 50. Um, they had a lot more on me. They had formed a task force to just deal with me. And um, you had your own t- criminal task force. Yes. You they, were that impressive of a criminal. Well, I don't know if I was that impressive. You know, impressive criminals don't get caught. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I had 10 felonies. That shows you how impressive I was, you know, but I was dedicated to a criminal lifestyle and stuff. So for every one felony I got caught for, there was 300 I got away with, you know, so um all of a sudden, they converged on me, and right at the, a lot of things happened right at the same time. Um, my son had been shot. He got his leg shot off um, uh, and barely lived. Um, he, he had turned state's evidence and informed on my whole family and turned in 10 of my closest relatives for murder. Um, he excluded me and my brothers um, because, you know, there were his uncles and stuff. We were the only ones that were off limits when he testified uh, against the family gang. Uh, the, it, it, just everything, it was crumbling. 
And um, I was um, working. I had a dual lifestyle. They thought the people I worked for didn't know I had a criminal history. It was a very good job as a teacher. And all of a sudden, one day, a news reporter shows up at my job with the cameras and telling everybody about me. I'm a gang leader. I'm this, that, and the other, and that I'm an awful human being. And it crushed me because I, for the first time in my life, I was ashamed. I don't know why on that day. And I gave my life to God right there on the, on the spot. When that guy, the guy did me the greatest favor in the world, uh, profiling me on TV, making me a big, ugly story. And it forced me to give my life to Jesus. And that was Fox 9, wasn't it? The Fox 9, Tom Lydon. Wow. And Tom Lydon was one of those guys. I remember when he was a young reporter moving on up. So he actually, did you ever, you ever gone back and thanked him? Oh, absolutely. He came back 20 years later and did a, another show on me. Because people kept telling me, Tom, turn up seed. And Tom came, okay, I'll come check him out. That show won a TV Emmy Award um, uh, for change. It's called John Turnipseed and Me, Tom Lydon. Um, wow. So even God used him to come back and retell the story of what he did to save my life. <laughs> That's a fantastic story. John, you, you, you gave your life to, the, to Jesus. You surrendered as Tom Lydon has got cameras on you. You, you had retreated to your office where you yes. were teaching. And you described yourself, you're on the floor. And you give your life to Christ. How did God move you from there, from being charged with 50 felonies, being ready to be sentenced for life in prison, to where you are today at Urban Ventures? Yes, it was a mistaken meeting. Um, I, the day of sentencing is when it all happened. Um, I gave my life to Christ, but I didn't tell anybody. The only person that knew was Art Erickson um, and a few close people around me. I didn't want to be walking around with the Bible and all that. So I didn't <laughs> want to be fake because I'm facing all this time. And uh, uh, My lawyer had worked the deal down to 10 years. But the day I went to court, um, I accidentally got a chance to meet the prosecutor. And it was by accident. Like in the hallway or something? In the hallway. We sat and we talked and he seen the person that I was and changed his mind when we went into the court and actually became an advocate as opposed to wanting to put me away for the rest of my life. And the judge, I I later realized my judge was a Christian. My probation officer was a Christian. My lawyer was a Christian. And the prosecutor was a Christian. And I was a new Christian. And these are people that had seen you commit yes crime they'd Everybody. seen you a few times in court yes and the judge had seen me a number of times i was prosecuted by the career criminal division which never makes deals never backs up off their stance i was caught red-handed um i you know, com- confessed to 50 of the i don't know how many crimes they threw at me but i only took 50 and uh, i threw myself at the mercy of the court and god just i walked out there on probation and people couldn't believe it Somebody had prophesied over you that that's what yes. would happen. Yes. The the pastor that the last sermon that I went to, it wasn't directly at me, but he said, somebody out there is in trouble. And I just want you to know that um, Jesus is your defense attorney and God is your judge. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. And then if you, it's, you said in here that if you surrender, it, you know, some sort of a miracle is going to happen or you're not going to. Yes. If. If I surrendered, I had to surrender my life completely. When I asked God to come into my life, I had to completely, no cross your fingers behind your back, you know, wink, wink, you know, it was between me and him and I was his child and he, I knew he came and I knew he knew I was for real and I didn't know what would happen, but I knew that that things would be okay, even if I went to prison. (laughs) I love that. So you went from a workplace 
that was the streets of South Minneapolis mm. to where your ministry is to the streets of South Minneapolis. Talk about how God moved you to Urban Ventures. So just um, maybe a month before all of this happened, a friend of mine that was hired by Urban Ventures that I've been in prison with, I'm like, who gave you a job, man? <laughs> and uh, he said, man, this, this organization, and he said, I'm starting a fathering program, and I need people to come, and you'd be a great facilitator. And so as a favor to him, I just came because he knew if I came, I could tell my family members to come. We're, ex- you know, prisoner stuff. We're helping each other out. That's mm-hmm. all I'm doing. But I came there, and he was training me to be a facilitator, and I sort of liked it. And um, I didn't know that the storm was coming. And then I found out that Art Erickson, it was his place. And I said, I know that dude. So when I gave my life to Christ, I, you know, I got out of jail, and I asked to see him. And uh, I went, I came to see him in his office and uh, he, you know, sat down and he told me this, that pain will lead you to Christ and success will lead you away. He said, Johnny, you will have a lot of success in your life. I can tell the pain you're in right now, you're hugging Jesus and Chris, you know, talking to him all the time. Don't let success walk you away from him. That was our very first meeting 25, 25 years ago. Mm. That's great advice. That was the first time you'd listened to him. First, Yeah. But I never sat down with him to get any advice. You know, I, you know, was open and, you know, he prayed for me and stuff and, you know, uh, went to war with me almost, you know, um, helping me. I even lived with him for two years. Hmm. Um, so. Urban Ventures has quite, you're now the executive director. Executive vice president. Executive vice yes, president. Yes. Well, it's like you're still. You're prophesizing. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you look at where the Lord has you today. As we walk through the doors, there are tons of kids around here. Mm-hmm. And your vision, as I studied your five-year strategy plan yesterday on the website, you've got a big vision for this community. Why don't you talk about what Urban Ventures is all about? You know, um, the kids and uh, and poor people in general, um, 50% has always been okay. You know, so we say 50% of our kids are going to school. 50% of our kids are graduating from that. 50% is not okay. Okay. So we've made a bold statement that 100% of the kids in this neighborhood will go graduate from high school and go to some type of education outside of high school, college or trade school, that kind of thing, anything less than a hundred percent. You know, if we reach 99, we failed. Okay. And the only way we can even get in the nineties is Jesus. Jesus has to push it. And if he he deems it, so we will do exactly what we've set out to do. But we, this neighborhood has been shortchanged forever. We are going to give it everything and uh, die trying. Talk to me about that, that shortchange, because I was reading about that, and, and, you, and you talked about how this neighborhood has been overlooked and shortchanged. What does that mean? Because there are neighborhoods like this across the country, but what does that mean? That, that means that it's, it's okay if uh, 30% of the, of the African-American boys in this community end up in prison. That was an okay number. That's so ridiculous. So you're talking a statistic. They're yeah. like, well, that's an okay number. Yeah, that's an okay number. We got 30% of our kids graduating. Let's try to get them to 60% and then we we can clap. And oh, No, that means that 30 more percent of the kids are still suffering mm-hmm. and stuff. If 30% of the kids in Edina were failing and stuff, it'd be a national catastrophe and stuff. And people would be rallying in the streets. And we want it like that here. We want every child here to have the opportunity and the and the 
surroundings to go where they need to be because they can be successful. And we're tired, you know, we're tired of uh, teaching people how to stay in poverty. We're going to teach people how to move out of poverty. We, we, we don't want to have a generation that's not going to jail, but they're, they, they're struggling check to check. We want them out of poverty also. South Minneapolis is no longer a black neighborhood. No. I mean, I can't even imagine. As we just drove down Lake Street, because we were hitting some of our favorite old places on Lake Street to, for, for lunch today. I mean, I can't tell you how many different cultures I saw representative. I, yes. I mean, do you have any idea how many different languages no, I, are even No, they being say spoken? we're the most diverse community in the world, actually, right here in South Minneapolis. It's we. How amazing is that? that? That is totally amazing. And why would people come here? It's cold here in the wintertime. <laughs> it is cold here, but Minnesota has resources. Right. You know, um, people from all over other states come here. They know, you know, I'd see people from Africa. I'd say, why are you coming here of all places? Because you can do something here. You know, there's jobs here. Right. We have more jobs than people. Well, that's what I've heard. I'm hearing from all the small business owners we've been talking to in the last couple weeks. They can't get people. They can't get people. And But wages are going up, which is amazing. I mean, I just, mm-hmm. uh, somebody was telling me the delivery driver, just for a local business, they're like, they're paying 20 bucks an hour for a delivery driver. Mm-hmm. In Florida, those are like king's wages. I mean, yes. I mean, that's totally different. So let me ask a question. I'm going to interject here with you guys in your yeah. show. This is great. <laughs> I love learning, and Jim and I both do, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. When you have a goal of getting kids to be able to have the opportunity to go to college or trade school or some further education. What do you see that leading to? I mean, I know you say you want people out of poverty, but um, first of all, they have to be able to finish high school mm-hmm. in order to do that, right? So Absolutely. is there like a back plan for that? Well, we're starting an early childhood learning center, first off. We're okay. not going to have kids starting from behind. You know, uh, it, if they start from behind, they'll always be behind. Mm-hmm. I don't care what anybody says. So well, we can catch that? them up. You get a kid that is not kindergarten ready, they already start an individual education plan. They sort yeah. of put them at a lower level, learning at a lower pace, learning at a slower pace and stuff. The world ain't going to wait for them. So right. the other kids, right. they're learning. And all of a sudden, the other kids that came in ready, they get put into other classes that are excelling. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be the bosses of the world, okay? <laughs> the rest of the kids, they're going to pretty soon figure out, I'm in a slow class. I'm riding this, the little bus to school. Um, I'm not as smart as those other kids, and their expectations go down. So, you know, all of a sudden, now you've got a, a self-worth problem. Mm-hmm. So if a kid, the kids that like school are the kids that are caught up, and it's easy to them because right. school can be easy. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's one of the steps. And to get a kid to graduate from high school, there's a lot of things that go into that. You just can't say, okay, we'll just give them school. You have to support the family. Mm -hmm. So we come around families and we come mother, father, anybody that's in that family, all your sisters, your siblings are your best support system. So we if you are in our program, we want your brothers and sisters in our program. So that we provide a support network for the whole family. And that means that if you're going to graduate from high school, you can't get into illicit drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay. More importantly, and you can't self-destruct, meaning that, you know, we can't let elements around you destroy you. So we keep the gangs out of our neighborhood. I mean, they operate the darkness, but we don't let them operate in the light around here. You don't see graffiti and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Our school is safe. This is a safe place to be so mm-hmm. kids can be comfortable. So you have to do a lot of work. And if the parents are struggling, you got to help the parents. 
and we're not a welfare program. We don't have a food shelf and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We energize parents to be the best that they can be because everybody is capable once they discover who they are. So how are you doing that? Like with parents, are you having gatherings and things like that? Yes, where you're we doing have weekly some education. We have weekly education. Uh, we okay. have 20 week parenting uh, courses. Uh, we have other support services for parenting. Mm-hmm. I mentor a lot of uh, parents. We have marriage counseling, uh, things of that nature. Um, so it's, it's the whole, when the kid comes, whatever he comes with, he or she, that's what we're going to work with. And we really reach out to the, to the families. So it's no longer about the plight of the South Minneapolis neighborhoods. It's about the possibility Absolutely. in the South Minneapolis neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there's, I mean, each young mind, there's so much that can be done if you could just keep them on the straight and narrow and keep the family strong. Because really, families are the fabric of society. Marriage is the fabric of society. We keep families together. Absolutely. Kids are impacted. We've got John Turnipseed here. He is the executive vice president of Urban Ventures. Check him out online, urbanventures.org, urbanventures.org. John, you got some amazing things going on here, but Martha's got a question. We want to make sure we ask it before we get to the end of the show. Well, we want to hear what it is that um, the key messages that Urban Ventures kind of lives by. We live by these messages here. We have one big goal to break the cycle of generational poverty by sending every child in our neighborhood to college or trade school. Mm. Three things that we really work on mind, body and heart and holistic growth is what sets us apart. There's five critical stages, a cradle to college pipeline for support to kids and their families that we work on. And there's 10 metrics that we measure ourselves on. I won't go into all of them, but that's basically our general strategy to get to where we're going. Well, when I read on your website, this is unapologetically centered on Jesus. Yes. I mean, you know, you're, you're impacting a community and you don't hide the fact that Jesus is at the center of this reformation. Yes. He's on the main line. That's just an old Southern. Mm, On the main line. (laughs) Yeah. So um, we were looking at a picture that you have here in your conference room of this, like a, a aerial view, right. and you are pointing out several things that are um, connected to urban ventures. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, we're there's a school in our neighborhood that's um, one of the lowest, uh, what can I say, performing schools in mm-hmm. Minneapolis and stuff. They've had five principals over the last four years, oh and, my. and we're partnering with them. They're, you know, they're on a great track. They're they're getting ready to just really change the dynamics of that school, and you know, we're gonna do whatever we can to support them. And we partner with three other uh, schools closely in our neighborhood to do some things that they don't do in their school settings, you know, like our music program and things of that nature and our mm-hmm. mentoring programs for uh, some of the kids that go there. So we, um, and we partner with the people around us, we, you know, Wells Fargo and, and other companies and uh, Abbott Northwestern Hospital has been a great asset and Best Buy. And just, you know, we just had some tremendous partners in Crystal Ray Jesuit uh, high school. So we are, we know we cannot do this alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, Southside Community Clinic helps us with nutrition and we have a farm and things of that nature. You got a farm in South Minneapolis? We have a, well, it's in Lakeville, but we have two greenhouses that we grow and teach our kids how to grow and cook uh, healthy food um, right here because nutrition has to be a part of what we do. Why is that so important? Why is nutrition important? Um, you know, even Jesus had to feed people. Yes, and he, he fed them. He actually fed them fish and bread, which is pretty uh, uh, nutritional. Um, if kids are nutritionally, more, there's a saying that more kids die by drive-through at, at fast food <laughs> restaurants, excuse me, 
than uh, than drive-by shootings. You know, our kids in our neighborhood are not eating correctly. They're sure. eating out of the corner store and stuff. So Because that's what they have available. That's what they have available. There's no that's, Cub Foods in your neighborhood? Well, even when there's Cub food, they've been we've been conditioned to eat out of the corner store. Sure. Cheetos and all. Not saying that a kid can't have a Cheeto every once no, in a while. No, because Cheetos but, are excellent. But three meals a day is mm-hmm. the is the meals of champions, and we want to create champions here. But three of the right types of meals right. uh, will help with learning and studying and sleep habits and everything. Yes, yeah, so if a kid is hungry and they're not nourished, they have a hard time learning. Absolutely. And all of that ties together. That's so exciting to hear that you have partnered with people that know how to do these things and how to help you to bring that into the community. Um, You know, one of the things we didn't say we were going to talk about this, but those sound like things that are to help this community stay this community. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times people want to clean up a community and everybody leaves, but Mm -hmm. that's, we don't want that to happen here, right? Oh, absolutely. And what we intentionally did was buy up land and we changed about, we put in soccer fields for the community. We put in four gyms for the community. We put a music academy in Mm -hmm. for the community. We put landmarks that will never leave this community. We are dedicated. We're going to keep those landmarks going. And so we have a big footprint and it's for the community. Otherwise it would all be gone. It would be all condominiums. This is a very coveted part of South Minneapolis now. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, every time we've always driven by, there's there are some houses that you see from the highway right that, that just speak to my soul because yeah. they just they're these beautiful old big houses <laughs> and I'm I'm glad to hear that people aren't just taking them over and kicking people out because yeah. because I know that's a danger in a community mm-hmm. for that to happen. Urban Ventures, how long has it been around? 25 years. We're celebrating our 25th year, um, uh, October 25th. I uh, hope I got that right. 24th or 25th. Amy Grant is coming here to help us celebrate. Nice. Awesome. Wow, that's yeah. fantastic. I'm and sure you- they can find out about that on the website eventually. Absolutely. Urbanventures.org. John Turnipseed, talk to us about, you've been here 20 years, you said. No. I'm 25. Five as a client. I was, five as a client. I was the first adult client of the Fathering Center. Okay. What kind of impact has Urban Ventures made on this community? Urban Ventures, this was Crack Alley. It's no longer Crack Alley. Urban Ventures made an investment early in this in this community so that other people could come in and feel safe and then, you know, invited neighbors in. There's some intentional neighbors that we've invited in and, and helped uh, with businesses and things of that nature. We actually physically help this neighborhood along with emotionally helping them by bringing in the word of Jesus Christ and uh, being a stabilizing force in this neighborhood. And so it's a, I mean, you've taken South Minneapolis, which was not a safe place 40 years ago and it's a safe place and it's, and would you say it's flourishing? It's it's flourishing. Um, You know, we have a large um, Latino um, East African and and, uh, African American populations and uh, it's flourishing. You don't hear gunshots and there's, prostitutes are not walking up and down the street you know we're not a police agency matter of fact a lot of the prostitutes that used to walk up and down the street we help get out of the life mm. and so, god. so god wants you to help all of his children you yep. don't just you don't shoo any of his children away a lot of the ex-gang members have worked for us came through our programs and uh, i have 10 felonies and i'm the executive vice president so there is redemption and along with redemption Amen. we will reach out and uh, we hire our community also I mean, that's what's so powerful. I mean, technically, you know, Paul the Apostle, he had a felony too. 
You know, mm. Moses. Moses had a felony. David. David had a felony. Okay, there's a lot of those guys. Jesus was an ex-con. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus didn't murder anybody. Those I guys know, all murder but, people. Yeah. All right. Urban Invent- Urban Ventures is, has this aggressive plan to make an impact, continue to make an impact by 2040 to have every kid graduate from high school and get into an a, a, a grad uh, undergraduate kind of a program. How can this work, Urban Ventures work, be reproduced in other urban areas across the country? Is it possible? Well, we have a training institute also called Studio 180. Um, it's sort of a separate entity that uh, Art Erickson runs it. And his thing is to teach other people how to do what we've done here. And uh, he's done an amazing job. I think we're going to be somebody in Iowa is, is replicating us. And, uh, you know, we've been asked to re- do the replication ourselves. But the job is too big. You have to be dedicated to your neighborhood. Right. You can't leave. It takes neighborhood leaders like you in each one of those areas, doesn't it? Well, I think that's a great honor. But yeah, it takes people that want, I love this community. I, you know, I love the people in it and it's, the people have changed, but the mission hasn't changed mm-hmm. and stuff. It's, we're all God's children and stuff. So if I can help in any way, I'll be here the rest of my life. Well, what I was getting to was the fact that you know, you grew up in South Minneapolis. Yes. You understand South Minneapolis. You're from here. It takes somebody like you and those other neighborhoods that loves yes. that area that's willing to be a father to the community. Absolutely. And, and most, because most of those communities, most of those urban areas are suffering from fatherlessness. There's yes. got to be somebody to start the trend. Yes. Fatherlessness, which leads to the breakdown of the breakup of the family. And we, we believe that the family is what's the most important. And when you go into a community, you can't just run if you go into a pygmy colony colony and 10 years later none of the pygmies are are making any decisions you failed and what i mean by that urban ventures didn't come in here and say okay all you people get the heck out of here okay we want to help you and we want to create leaders within the community and there's a number of leaders that have came up through urban ventures we you know i'm one of them Mm -hmm. you know and there's been numerous others that have came up and still support this community so never, you know, when you have an idea to help a community, help the people in the community to be leaders, okay? Because people are capable. If you just give them a chance. Give them a chance. Give them a shot. So those are partners that you're looking for. People that are around the country that are like, ah, I love what John Turnips he's talking about. Can they call you? Can they call and talk to you about this? Yes, they can call and talk to me. All right. And they can find out how to get a hold of you on urbanventures.org. Urbanventures.org. Okay. Urbanventures.org. I mean, it. It's fantastic. I love the feel of what you're doing, and I can't, I can't wait for the follow-up. Are you raising up? Really quick, 10 seconds. Do you have a perpetuation plan when you decide that you can't walk any longer along these streets? Do you have somebody that you've raised up that's going to take your place? Well, I'm working with two or three young men right now. So it's going to take three guys to do your job. I'm just, I'm just looking for the, the me. Sure. And stuff. And my bosses gave me that as a directive to uh, it's important. raise up the next John. John Turnipseed, thank you so much for being an I work for him. Thank you. I appreciate it. Make sure you check him out online, urbanventures.org, urbanventures.org. Martha, again, just an amazing story. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your hosts, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. We're Christ followers. Our workplace, it's our mission field, but ultimately, I, I work, work for, for him. him.